1: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and this region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at Crawford.anu edu.au. And I am delighted today to be joined by not one, but two of my fantastic co-presenters. The first I'd like to introduce is Associate Professor Sarah Bice. Hello, Sarah.
2: Hey, Martin. How's it going? Uh, It's
1: really good. Sarah leads the Next Generation Engagement Program. She's an Associate Professor here at Crawford School. Uh, And she recently won through the program the 2018 Core Values Award. Congratulations for that.
2: Thank you, and it's a big congratulations for a team of researchers. We were really pleased to receive a highly commended research award from the International Association for Public Participation.
1: Uh, that sounds like a big deal. It was a big
2: deal, and they have a very long name. That's <laughs> how <laughs> so you know it's important. <laughs> That's right.
1: So how has the Next Generation Engagement Program been going since you won the award?
2: The award was a wonderful way to end 2018, but we are all systems go. So we currently have a researcher from Crawford, Dr. Kirsty Jones. She is embedded at Melbourne Water doing co-research on developing a best practice framework for community engagement in the infrastructure sector. And just on Monday, we were presenting work that we did in consultation last year with Tsinghua University in Beijing around public-private partnerships in the $1 $1 trillion Belt and Road Initiative. So lots happening, really busy, tons of travel, very exciting. Watch this space. Yeah, it
1: sounds like a very exp- exciting space to be working in. And the other voice you heard there was Dr. Jill Shepard. Jill is a lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. ANU. She's got expertise in comparative politics, political behavior and internet and politics. Hello, Jill.
3: G'day, Martin. I haven't won any awards. But I'll give you an award, Jill, oh, for best Sarah. co-host
2: of a podcast. <laughs> stop it.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it's just a matter of time. So this is the third week in a row, Jill, for you. That's a pretty good innings. We're bowled over to have you back again.
3: Please stop oh. pretending you know anything about cricket, Martin. <laughs>
1: I looked up two cricket terms. I know.
3: I might Even be back I, as an week. American,
2: got the ball joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad joke.
1: So before we dive into this week's pod, a little reminder that we are really keen for you to join our Facebook podcast gang. Uh, If you haven't already, you can find us on Facebook, just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. We're in there, we're listening to your ideas, your feedback and your comments, and we're really enjoying hearing all of them. Um, Last week, we introduced a new segment into the podcast where we ask our presenters to uh, take a look back over a week in policy and talk about talk briefly about something that sort of caught their eye. So perhaps if I can turn to you, Jill, what's caught your eye over the last week? It's been a big week in Australian policy and politics, right?
3: It has. I haven't been able to avoid the news as much as I usually like to. I, I mean, it's, we'd be remiss to not mention um, the uh, legislation that's been introduced at the time of uh, recording. It's uh, just about to go through the Senate that will bring uh, unwell and suffering asylum seekers onto the Australian or onto Australian soil. Um, What I'm really interested in, though, from a, a really callous, I guess, political perspective is how the reporting about this has been predominantly focused on what happens if boats return. I think what's much more interesting is what happens in the much more likely scenario that we just go on as is. And we start to transfer a lot of asylum seekers back to the Australian mainland. That's going to be fascinating and that's got huge policy implications for our community settlement and how it it might quite likely change our attitudes towards asylum seekers generally. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens now.
1: How is all of this going to play, play out in the upcoming election, which everyone seems to think is going to be mid-May
3: Well, hopefully it'll be mid-May. I'm not quite ready for it to be earlier. So um, if the Prime Minister's listening, that would be great. I'm sure he is. Uh, He probably is. Um, Look, we know that conservative governments like talking about national security. uh, The opposition doesn't want to talk about national security. It's not something that they win votes on. So they will, uh, as much as possible, try to walk lockstep with the government. Uh, they'll talk about wealth inequality, public health and education, the, all the things that win Labor votes. So it's going to be a pretty same old, same old election, I think.
1: I mean, this is obviously a big issue in political and policy circles, but do the kinds of things that we've seen playing out this week matter to Australian voters?
3: Uh, yeah, they do. Australian voters are really worried about border security. It's a really salient issue for most voters. It's something that I think in, in Canberra, we, you know, we buy into the whole bubble. Uh, how do how, why could people possibly worry about this? Well, it's, you know, our borders are important. It ties in very deeply with ideas of national sovereignty. If we can't control who comes into our country, especially in an era of rapid globalisation, what can we control? Uh, I think it's a legitimate concern and I I think it's um, probably not going to be the most edifying election campaign, but it's certainly one that will
1: appeal
2: to a lot of voters.
1: Well, it's been very interesting watching that play out this week. What about you, Sarah? What's caught your eye?
2: Well, you know, Jill, when you talk about border security and the fact that the voting public are really interested, we saw a really similar discussion in the US recently. And that's the issue that's caught my eye is the State of the Union address, which was unprecedented, not unprecedentedly, but almost unprecedentedly delayed due to the government shutdown, which occurred, as many of our listeners will know, due to uh, Trump's refusal to budge on the border wall, which apparently now is not going to be concrete. It's going to be steel. We're going to build a barrier. It's going to be steel. I've also heard it's going to be see-through. I've also heard it's going to be made of, uh, as as yet unidentified metals from an alien planet as part of the (laughs) Trump space program. So so we'll see what happens there. So I think, you know, globally, these issues are, as you say, very salient. But what really stood out for me in the delayed United States State of the Union address was the complete lack of mention of climate change. And I'm certainly not the only person to note mm. that omission uh, with great concern. Climate scientists tell us that we need to act within the next 12 years if we are going to achieve uh, the two degrees or less Commitment. That's certainly not happening in the United States. And the lack of mention of this in what is the annual commitment, the prioritization of the executive branch of the U.S. government, is a huge concern, particularly in light of the policies that the Trump administration has very much focused on in terms of rolling back environmental legislation, the attacks on the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and great open and very public support for the coal industry and revitalization of that industry in the United States. So for me, the big policy issue that I noted most recently was one that wasn't spoken about.
1: And you said it was very delayed, that State of the Union address. How was it received by the American public?
2: There were a lot of positives in the reception, and I think that that was largely because of the visuals. So when we watched the State of the Union, uh, those of you who have seen the coverage will have noted that there was a sea of white mm-hmm. in the congressional audience, and that's what I want to focus on because I'm an optimist. We have the most women ever uh, in the United States Congress at the moment, and on the evening of the State of the Union in uh memory of the suffragettes. We're marking 100 years of American suffrage. Uh, They all wore white, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, whose golf clap of the president has also turned into a very fabulous social media meme, which I'm sure many of our listeners are using on Twitter as we speak. But that that was a very, very positive image and a Mm -hmm. positive positive message and a positive moment uh, in an otherwise concerning and somewhat dire State of the Union address that purported to be about unity and cohesion and very quickly slipped into uh, messages of not only disunity, but disharmony, and in some instances, uh, vilification of particular segments of the American society. So. Let's focus on the white and the light and the bright and hope that those women in Congress now are able to make some changes. And I'll just add to that. If you have not seen new Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's taking to task of the Congressional Committee on Campaign Financing, look it up.
1: It is pretty fabulous. I mean, it's a set piece, but it is pretty fabulous, isn't it?
2: She is very brilliant in the way in which she establishes the arguments around uh, executive abuse of campaign financing in the United States. I think it is an absolute masterclass in soft diplomacy and how to make a point without being overly forceful and getting the opposing side to agree with your position.
1: She's also very adept at social media. There's a terrific article in The Guardian today talking about some of the tactics that she uses to get her message across.
2: Martin, I would dance with her anytime. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, think, I wouldn't. I would look terrible. <laughs> I think we'd all like to see that. But you, <laughs> you mentioned, Sarah, uh, disharmony and disunity. And I guess the one thing that's caught my eye over the last week is something that uh, certainly touches on disharmony and disunity and that disharmony and disunity between the European Union and the and the UK, and Donald Tusk, who's the European Council President. Uh, Caused a bit of a stir in the UK this week when he came out and said that uh, he thought there would be a, quote, special place in hell for the Brexiteers who had pushed for Brexit without a sketch of a plan of how to implement it, which is pretty strong language for a very senior diplomat. So my question to both of you is, as Donald has now opened this special place in hell, what policy or policy idea would you like to see Go into that special place in hell alongside the Brexiteers, Jill. Perhaps I'll start with you.
3: I've got quite a few, and I don't want to offend anyone <laughs> there's, there's or any of space. sector. And, hell, and I feel that you know. I feel that like this is part of it, right? Um, I think there's a there's a special place in hell. Oh, I'm sorry um, for for the major political parties who continue to make it harder for uh, minor parties and independents to. Uh, get resources to run for parliament themselves, um, generally to have any say. I think uh, we're seeing increasingly the co opting of uh, state resources by the major parties. This isn't an Australian only phenomenon, um, it's happening all around the world. But when our political parties and our state, like, you know, the, the sort of executive um, infrastructure, start to merge, that's really bad. And It's really unsexy and it's really hard to get people excited about, but it's a massive
2: concern.
1: Yeah, sort of blurring of the lines there. Exactly. So uh, so what about you? What are you going to put alongside that and the Brexiteers, Sarah?
2: Oh, Martin, so I grew up in the fire and brimstone American South. I take hell really seriously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> go on. so um,
2: look, I'm just going to go right back to what we opened this discussion with around the lack of attention to climate change. I think that those politicians and uh, policymakers who are In denial of the climate science, who are not taking action, who are putting in place either uh, retrograde policies and regulations or, um, I suppose, unobtrusively obstructing measures that would otherwise support better environmental conservation and a shift to renewable energy as rapidly as possible. Not only do they deserve a special place in hell, but they are potentially creating hell on earth for future generations.
1: That's quite a lot of uh, policymakers and politicians around the world are going to be taking up quite a lot of space in hell.
2: It's going to be awesome. I read Dante and there are seven levels (laughs) and I'm sure we can find some space.
1: Well, thank you both for that. And listeners, we are really keen to get your thoughts on that. What would you like to see? What policy ideas would you like to see in the special place in hell? Get in contact with us. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum. You can join our brand new Facebook group, which is Policy Forum Pod, or just email podcast at So. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the UN Plan of Action on International Cooperation to Counter the World Drug Problem, and in March, member states will gather in Vienna to take stock of what's been achieved over the past 10 years. Progress, though, has been hard to come by. Over the past decade, the number of drug related deaths globally has increased by 145% to around 450,000 deaths per year in 2015. It's also led to mass incarcerations. Globally, one in five prisoners are in prison or in jail for drug offences, mostly for possession or personal use. So today on the pod, we want to shed a bit of light on global, regional and Australian drug use, trafficking, harm minimisation and drug policies. According to 2016's National Drug Strategy Household Survey, around 3.1 million Australians admitted to having taken an illicit drug before. And over the recent Australia Day long weekend, 25 people were admitted to hospital for drug-related illnesses in New South Wales alone – In response, the New South Wales Premier doubled down on her stance against pill testing at music festivals, saying she didn't want to give people a, quote, green light to take these drugs, and that it, quote, could unfortunately give people a false sense of security. Yet, despite this, medical experts from the Royal Australasian College of Physicians say that there is enough evidence to support trials of pill testing in order to reduce harm. Last weekend, the Mountain Sounds Festival in New South Wales was cancelled with organisers blaming the government's war on festivals. Organisers of another cancelled festival, Safari, I think that's how you pronounce it, said straight out, we are unfortunate to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when festivals are the new scapegoat of a failed government and their failed war on drugs. Well, coming up shortly, Jill and Sarah are going to be chatting to a panel of really distinguished experts on drug policy. Jill, tell us a little about what we're hoping to find out and who you're going to be speaking to.
3: I've got my own opinions on whether we have the policy settings right in Australia with regards to uh, to drug and, and harm minimisation. But The point of this pod is that we want to talk to experts, and so that's what we've done. We've gone out and asked uh, three experts whether it's time to change direction, whether we're fighting a war on drugs, or or whether we should be finding a way to decriminalise or or even uh, legalising certain types of drugs. I know from public opinion surveys that I run that for the first time ever in 2016, we've seen more Australians. For instance, uh, support the legalisation of marijuana than opposite. So that's, you know, we're in a really interesting time. So we had a great lineup of experts who we talked to shortly. Uh, we've got Dr. John Coyne, who's the head of the border security programme at ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, he's got expertise in border security, strategic intelligence, and transnational and, and serious organised crime. From the ANU, we have Jason Payne and Helen Keane. Jason is an associate professor at the Centre for Social Research and Methods in Criminology. Uh, his areas of expertise, uh, the causes and prevention of crime, criminology, uh, criminal theory and police administration. I know he's deeply interested in uh, incarceration and and the, I guess, pros and cons of uh, locking people up. And finally, uh, Helen is an associate professor and the head of school at the School of Sociology at the ANU, and she researches culture, gender, sexuality, and the history of medicine and drug-taking culture and and all of these sorts of interrelated topics. So we're attacking this from a, a range of different
1: angles. It's a really great lineup, and I'm very interested to hear what they've got to say. And we'll get to that in a second. But before we do, a quick reminder to our listeners, please do get in touch with us. We're really interested in your thoughts, your comments, and your feedback. On Facebook, we are Policy Forum Pod. That's where the group is. On Twitter, we're Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. I'll be back after the main interview where we're we'll going over some of your questions and comments and actually suggestions for future pods. But for now, let's have a listen to that conversation.
3: So thanks for joining us. We have uh, John Coyne from ASPE.
0: Hi, how are you going?
3: Helen Keane from Sociology at the ANU. Hi. And Jason Payne from Criminology at the ANU. Thanks for having me. Now, this is something I want to put to all of you. On 14th of October, 1982, the then president of the US, Ronald Reagan, declared a war on drugs. And we still use this kind of language. He was doubling down on an initiative started by Richard Nixon. Reagan declared that illicit drugs were a direct threat to US security, which brings you in, uh, John, and your expertise. So I'll start with Jason. Have policymakers won this war on drugs? Have they lost it? Are they still battling it?
4: Lost it? Well, still battling it, but lost it for the most part. I mean, you have to ask the question by how do we measure success in the context of, let's say, the rhetoric here, war? Um, Who have we beaten? Uh, What is the outcome? Uh, And ultimately, are we in a position as a society where we have achieved the objectives? Um, And I would say it's pretty obvious that we haven't um, for the most part, that that uh, the attempts to eradicate drug use or, or to limit significantly drug use in our community, um, to limit the social consequences of that drug use uh, have not been well achieved. Uh, and I think as a consequence of that, it would be fair to say that, that the war has not been won um, in that context.
5: Helen? Uh, yeah, I guess I would say, well, um, I don't even think it has been a war on drugs. I think it's been a war on drug users. Uh, and uh, I think has it been successful? Well, there's been a huge amount of harm produced by this war. Drugs are doing fine. (laughs) Uh, drugs are flourishing. Uh, So the war on drugs hasn't succeeded. But what has happened is uh, sort of criminalisation and um, lethality actually visited upon Mm -hmm. uh, drug users and uh, particular kinds of drug users, those who are already marginalised and vulnerable. So to me, it's a sort of question that I find really hard to answer, uh, because I think the whole notion of war on drugs is actually masking uh, something else that's going on.
3: I want to come back to that idea of marginalisation and of, you know, a, a, the drug war, I guess, being a proxy for something else. John, from a sort of security and border control perspective.
0: Look, I think that, um, you know, and there's two components. I think the, the militarisation of that sort of conflict has failed. I mean, if we've only got to look to Colombia with this, and I, I've talked in some detail with people who were in DEA at the time, uh, we went from having one person... Um, or one major cartel and through decapitation theory, we ended up now with multiple um, cartels and we ended up with a fragmentation of the market all the way up to Mexico. So um, I don't think militarisation in that conflict sense has worked. I think there's some shining moments where we've had some successes, but that's been despite the militarisation, um, and that's been despite that lens that's consistently applied to it.
2: Well,
3: that's this is in a week where El Chapo is being, her uh, you know, trialled or
2: uh, sentenced, so found guilty on all charges. <laughs> well, you've got to, right? Yeah. Otherwise, we're losing the war. We don't want to lose the war. And I mean, that's that's the question, isn't it? Uh, one of the battlefields in the war on drugs is the regulation of emerging new psychoactive substances. There's heaps of discussion about this, and we see it emerging in a lot of films. There's a lot of public interest in new psychoactive substances next to established illicit drugs like cannabis and cocaine, and we've seen great legalization of marijuana throughout the United States. And when I say great, I mean it in the sense of widespread uh, over the past year. Uh, Manufacturers are constantly developing new chemicals to replace those that are banned. So there's also a question about what are the fronts of this war on drugs? What do you think, John? Look, you know,
0: I I think I I was always trying to look to success um, in this sense. And that's, you know, what does success look like? And I think we've been pretty Poor at and just recently I have written on this, which is I think that um, first off we need to identify what the actual threats of today are and not in terms of any moral panic, in terms of, you know, what is actually the threat. Um, secondly, is I think that, you know, there's some there is some truisms in the three components of, for instance, our national strategy here in Australia, which is um, supply reduction, um, demand reduction, and harm minimisation. And only when you get a, a harmony between all three do you get an event like, for instance, and th- I mean, there's a lot of debate about this, but certainly the heroin crisis in Australia and our response to that mm. um, and where we are today with the heroin crisis um, is a sign that you can have some successes, um, but, you know, it's it's just a never-ending activity. So, you know, there's a range of fronts on this, and I think that we need to feel far more holistically Um, And it can't just be about an enforcement approach.
3: Is this a sort of whack-a-mole problem where you you get rid of heroin, but you get other opioids?
0: Oh, look, I think in some cases you do. I think that, um, look, there can be no doubt. Uh, I think the broader problem is is that um, as we stand globally today, the world has entered a period of overproduction of our key um, illicit drugs. So um, at the wholesale level today, um, you know, it's significantly cheaper than it was 10 years ago to buy heroin, to buy cocaine, to buy marijuana, to buy ATS or amphetamine-type substances. Um, So, you know, price is part of that differential um, as well. But, you know, I I think there are some some efforts that we've had that have been successful. Take the the Thai royal family and the eradication of poppy production um, in Thailand as an example, but that does have displacement impacts.
3: I mean, that's the thing, right? There's other things going on in Thailand, right? So I want to stick on that topic that 10 years ago, UN member states uh, set out goals to uh, reduce um, the supply uh, of drugs. They agreed that they needed to do more on this on this front. Um, and instead of, I guess, just working on uh, lowering demand, but that, that was a supply issue as well, But a report released by the International Drug Policy Consortium last year saw that this had been basically a colossal failure. So as you say, John, supply has gone up and it's only driving the cost down. Helen, is this a a problem? Is is this a key, uh, I guess, um, obstacle to countries struggling to discourage people from taking drugs?
5: Uh, I guess it is a a key because I think like all forms of consumption, drug consumption is price sensitive. So I Mm. think that does raise a point that I think is important, which is that this is not some form of behavior that's completely unlike any other form of human behavior. You know, that it's some sort of monstrous alien uh, thing that, you know, is not, it's actually part of human nature. And in in fact, part of all human cultures to take psychoactive substances, right? So it is normal for humans to want to take these substances. So certainly I I think price sensitivity makes a difference. I mean, I think the other issue around issues of supply, which goes to the question of you know, what is an illicit drug and how do we decide that the pharmaceutical supply also has a big impact on illicit supply So you know, if you look at the opiate crisis in North America at the moment, you know, this is partly about fentanyl and and other sort of synthetic opioids moving you know, from the illicit to the illicit and back mm-hmm. and then the, you know, there 's been a real crackdown on the illicit supply. Uh, on the med- you know the pharmaceutical supply that pushes people into the black market so i think part of the problem is thinking of it just in terms of illicit Actually, you yep. know that that we, we are a sort of drug using species, and you know there are all these kinds of things available, and you know ha- they shift around between the legal and the illicit. I sometimes look at my uh,
3: medicine box at home, and it's it's terrifying. Are you a drug user, Jill? I uh, absolutely <laughs> am. <laughs> the other the other um, analogy that comes to mind is, and, and like full disclosure, I'm an Essendon football fan, um, but when <laughs> when they had their drug taking there, crisis, no so to help you go for that. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are drugs to help me for that. Um, so much was made of this, of this, I guess, hypothetical binary that Essendon were taking drugs and injecting drugs, and mm. that was awful. Whereas everyone else was taking vitamin supplements, and that's not the case at all. Mm. And I used to try to argue this with friends that barrack for other clubs, and then I just gave up. Uh, Jason, you're one of your exper- areas of expertise is incarceration. Sure. According to this UN report. One in five people uh, are incarcerated for drug-related offences. Should we lower this number? And and if we decide that we should, what can we do?
4: So there's two components to this. There are people who are in custody and who are incarcerated for serious drug offences, that is trafficking large quantities of drugs across borders, internally within countries and so forth. There's, there's that element. And then there's the much larger proportion of people in our prison systems who are therefore, as you refer to it, drug-related offending, uh, yep. which is the crime that is committed either in connection to concert with or as a re- result of uh, the interactions drug users have with the criminal justice system and society at large. Now, the vast majority of people in our prison systems fall into the latter category. They are the people who are caught up in the criminal justice system and the process as a consequence of. All the things that Helen was talking about before, the kind of natural drug-taking behaviours of, of the human species, uh, the interaction those people subsequently have in their disadvantaged communities with police and criminal justice sector and so forth. Um, so to answer your question, uh, there is, I think, a need for sure uh, for custodial responses and, and uh, punitive responses, arguably, to those who are taking advantage of the serious trafficking of illicit substances across borders and around the world. Um, but unfortunately, there is a collateral damage. And the collateral damage of that is the policy that we implement at the kind of domestic level to try and deal with the user side of the market with the view yeah. to deterring users from consuming and demanding those products. And the people most likely to suffer the consequences of that are highly disadvantaged communities in Australia and elsewhere in the world. It's our indigenous communities, our young people and so forth. And it's it's difficult, I think, to think of those people in custody who are drug users as, uh, you know, a single Kind of uh, homogenous group of people, when in reality v- the vast majority of them are from poor, disadvantaged areas, or have gotten caught up in the criminal justice system as a result of uh, what I would argue to be the kind of pu- the, the overly punitive responses yep. we have at the low end dealing with the users, as opposed to the high end.
3: So incarceration isn't having the effect of being a deterrent.
4: No. Uh, And why should it? I mean, deterrence theory requires four principles, um, and I won't go into the very specifics (laughs) of those. (laughs) However, however, (laughs) the, the single most important of those principles is the certainty of getting caught. So okay. it's, not, it's not how much you punish a person. It's yep. not the severity of the penalty that they're likely to achieve. It's how likely they believe it is that they are to be caught for the activity that they are undertaking. Um, we only need to go back to the data that John showed before or said before around the, the price of illicit substances going down, the supply being around to show that we're having absolutely no real impact on the reality of increasing the perceived probability of getting caught. And in the absence of that, it doesn't
0: work.
3: And that's a direct trade off, right? Sure. Drugs are cheap. I'm probably not going to get caught. Yeah. Right?
0: And some of this relates, I just want to pick up on that point. I think some of this relates back to, and, um, I'm not an academic, so I always like. But the, oh, well, this is a few times don't, I sit there and turn don't around be and smug, quote do <laughs> 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 oh, This is one of the few times that I like to read it up. So I think that this has a lot to do with Donald Cressy's model back to, in 1969. There is this thought, and his theory studying one organized crime group, Costa Nistra, is that you know somehow through magical powers that we can decapitate and take out people out of the circulation, and that will that will impact on organized crime, and in this case, supply. Um, The reality of our global supply chain now and the sorts of networked, amorphous, organised crime groups is that the minute you take out one Mr Big, and generally as it stands at the moment, the crime records would say Mr Bigs, um, you take out one, they're rapidly replaced, um, if not straight away, um, soon after. So uh, the very idea that the philosophy we have for how we target these organisations at the high end, this is what we're talking about in that sense of the wholesale people, the producers, the movers, um, not the users. And I think that if you would find, if we brought in, like here in the Australian Capital Territory, if we brought in a... Um, a series of ACT policing officers, and we asked them, we said, you know, about putting young children or young people in jail for using marijuana on a Friday night, the vast majority of them would turn around and say they see no benefit in that. I'm almost sure of that. So, you know, and again, it comes back to this discussion, what does success look like in terms of this issue that we could all... uh, illicit drug use. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we really need a complete rethink in terms of strategy. Um, you know, we can have disproportionate impacts. Um, and secondly, and i pick up a point that Helen said before, this is about that unintended policy consequences. We tend to be very roughshod in terms of policy in response to drug problems. The US noticed that it had a major um, problem with prescribed um, uh, opioids or synthetic opioids. So the Drug Enforcement Agency decided almost overnight that it would cut back availability by Mm -hmm. one quarter and that would fix the problem. Um, You know, it, it would... The unintended consequence, it created a whole new market. It resurged the production of um, black tar heroin in North America and fentanyl. So from my perspective, this is where we get into this, you know, unintended consequences of policy, in this case, arrests people in jail, um, and not having a clear picture of how we strategically target what exactly is the problem.
3: So what can be done about that?
0: Well, you know, it's a broad question. I think that um, there's some, we have to look to some of the successes. So, um, you know, if we look at precursor control in a broader sense in dealing with um, uh, novel psychoactive substances and in dealing with synthetic drugs, uh, it plays an important role. But at the same time, um, you know, and where we're failing, certainly in the Australian side of the house is, you know, we have to work on demand reduction. And I think the biggest key point, um, and it's the topic of the day, remains harm minimisation. I'm sure uh, my colleagues here will be able to get better quotes on it, but in the first 10 years of operation of um, the safe injecting site in King's Cross, they managed thousands of overdoses without a single death. And secondly, in terms of lessons learnt, if we look towards the example of the heroin crisis... People think that drug overdoses are a problem for other people or low socioeconomic people, or whatever. Um, when it came to the heroin crisis, the real turning point was when uh, the then Prime Minister Bob Hawke got up crying saying his daughter was a heroin addict. Um, the real turning point at the moment in terms of um, what's happening over the last six months has been because, um, and I use it very tongue in cheek, normal kids are overdosing mm. on um, you know MDMA and other similar products at uh, dance festivals.
2: John, I think those comments bring us directly to our next topic, which is around harm minimisation. And you mentioned safe injecting rooms. Uh, we know that supervised consumption facilities can offer substantial harm minimization. If we look at the data, we get some notable examples. Um, In June 2018, Melbourne opened its first safe injecting room. Uh, I've spent most of my life in Australia in Melbourne and that was a really big deal. Um, They expected about 300 people to use it on a daily basis and the mental health minister, Martin Foley, said at the time that it would save lives. So Helen, what's what's behind this approach to harm minimization and why, if we're going to save lives, yeah. is there so much opposition?
5: Mm. <laughs> um, so I tend to use the term harm reduction just because that's more current in the sort of spaces that I work in. And I think that that, that just says we're just trying to reduce harm. The question of whether we can minimise it and what it would mean to minimise. So I know it's a little, you know, it's a little academic-y kind of distinction, but I think of it as harm reduction. Harm Reduction has been part of the Australian drug policy actually since the 1980s, and it was the HIV epidemic that really brought mm-hmm. harm reduction in uh, to focus as a uh, as a strategy. But um, and, and initially, I think it was needle syringe programs that were the first real kind of push. Uh, you know, we are, you know, we we, we were seeing very high rates of uh, HIV transmission. And it just seems really obvious that if you give people clean needles, they will use them. As it turned out, they did. And, you know, th- therefore, Australia had a very low rate of HIV positive people in drug using communities compared to elsewhere in the world because of needle syringe programs. But more broadly, to me... Harm reduction, you know, there's the specific strategies such as needle syringe program, medically supervised injecting room, so forth. But to me, there is a sort of broader philosophy behind it, which is harm reduction is not about trying to stop people from using drugs. It's to say let's reduce the harms of drugs rather than trying to reduce drug use per se. So to me, that's quite a radical Mm. shift because it is saying the problem is not drug use. It's the harm that is a result of drug use. And to me, that brings drug use more into the line in the way we think of other activities. You know, driving is risky. Uh, mountain climbing is risky. Riding a horse is risky. These things, you know, cause lots of injuries and uh, so forth. How can we reduce the harm of these risky activities?
3: That's a huge shift in in public opinion and social attitudes. Yeah. Right? And,
5: I, and I think, look, to be honest, I think that um, there's a difference between Between being, you know, someone who supports needle syringe program to someone who would, you know, fully endorse the idea that the aim is not to reduce drug use and mm. to say what we're trying to just do is reduce harm, not 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 use per se. Um, so I think that you know one has to be pragmatic and strategic in this area. So you know to, to make to get the successes where you can. Uh, but I I guess I personally I am very interested in you know what it means to be a harm reduction advocate. It means taking seriously the views and experiences of people who use drugs Mm -hmm. as experts in this area because for so often they are seen as the problem and they're not seen as people who are invested in harm reduction. And to me, that's the other radical thing about harm reduction. It says... Uh, people who use drugs are not nihilistic they don't have a death wish they are you know they they are actually uh, rational you know human beings and if you, if you give them capacity they will they will be involved in improving their own health or improving their own circumstances
2: it seems to me helen there's something so important in this and you're you're presenting such a a rational and a very uh, some would say radical view about harm reduction, that we're going to think of this in the same way that we would as, you know, you drive a car and you'd wear your seatbelt and we're going to do things to improve saving lives and personal safety. Mm. A lot of Australians, though, would see drug use uh, as very closely associated with criminal behavior, with Mm. the types of behaviors and activities that they don't want in their backyards. And certainly we saw a lot of argument in Melbourne before The first safe consumption rooms were introduced about neighborhoods not wanting them, not in my neighborhood. Maybe it's an okay idea, but not in my neighborhood. So, Mm. Jason, what what are the actual impacts of these facilities in relation to crime and drug related crime? Is this a real concern?
4: Almost none. I mean, the evidence from wow. Sydney. Uh, so there was a lot of scaremongering that went on around the establishment of the first medically supervised injecting centre in Sydney. Um, the principal concern was that those locations would become honey pots for other kind of disorderly conduct, crime, you know, burglaries in the area. Um, and all of the evaluations of that centre now, over many years, have shown barely any impact on kind of the local community with respect to criminal justice outcomes. Um, Partly that was because New South Wales Police worked very closely in New South Wales to ensure that um, the kind of policing activity around those areas was moderated, that they weren't specifically targeting users going in and out of the centre. And so there was a a, a positive culture that was built around the the Sydney centre in order to ensure that it had, for lack of a better term, a seamless transition into the community. And as a consequence, many of the big concerns that were first raised around its establishment never came to fruition, Um, which is in part why it's so surprising that it took so long for mm. Melbourne to open their first centre, but then also part of the reason why Melbourne has, uh, because mm. there really is not a strong evidence base, if any at all, that that medically supervised injecting centres cause great community harm to the areas in which they're established.
2: Is there evidence that they reduce harm? That they that actually that they actually improve? Right. Things? So
4: so I'm gonna I'm gonna now tie academically a lot of things together because one thing that we haven't really spoken about is the harm that occurs consequent to the punitive responses we have to drug users. And I think we'll come back to touch on this briefly around pill testing um, and some of the justifications that are given for that. Um, But sometimes we tend to think or we tend to forget that actually... The way in which, as a community, we have responded to drug use itself causes harm. Um, and a classic case mm. is, is uh, police taking dogs into um, a rave party or a nightclub, mm. uh, and young people downing three pills at once so as not to get mm. caught, um, and suddenly find themselves having overdosed on MDMA or something and ending up in hospital. Um, so there, there are externalities; there are consequences to the other policies that we have that kind of surround this debate. Uh, and when we're talking about harm reduction, as mm. Helen describes it. Um, and harm minimisation more broadly, uh, we can't forget that we have a responsibility to minimise the harm that is caused as a consequent of all the other things that we do in this policy space. Now, in the context of the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, it is true, actually, that that the people who were using that centre were engaged in less crime. Certainly, the evaluations um, of that that program showed that the people coming in and out of those centres were for lack of a better term, different, uh, not necessarily individually or behaviourally different, but they were engaging in their local drug market much more differently because the risk of detection, the risk of getting caught and the other dangerous behaviours that emerge out of that had been taken away from the local market in King's Cross. And that's why these for lack of a better term, harm reduction strategies can actually have much wider benefits than just helping a drug user use drugs. And we tend to forget about that in the debate. The kind of the general public discourse is medically supervised injecting rooms are about giving drug users the free will to go and use drugs whenever they want. But actually, they have the much wider benefits to the community, particularly in those areas, um, but also to the people who come from much wider afield to use those centres.
2: So, you know, we have this evidence then about safe consumption rooms, and we are coming off the summer festival season, and this was uh, a pretty pretty rough and pretty difficult summer festival season. Not only do we see festivals cancelled, but we saw a number of deaths, and there's been a huge discussion around pill testing. But at the same time, it proves this almost impossible hurdle for policymakers, despite all of what we've just heard. Helen,
5: why, why, why? Just why? Uh, really? Yeah, if I could answer that, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think people are frightened. Um, I think that we have had decades of a discourse that, to me, is an inaccurate, stigmatizing discourse around drugs. Um, even some of the language that we use that might seem innocuous, you know, even the la- even the language of a drug dealer, um, you know. So people will talk in the pill testing context. People will say, "But this will help drug dealers." most of those people at those festivals uh, it's social supply they're getting they're getting drugs from their friends there isn't you know this their idea that there's some sort of you know uh, dangerous person called a drug dealer in this local context mm. is really not not the case so i think i think it's a fear response um I think that um, we have done, you know, we have thought about these substances in a way that separates them from the sort of normal. Uh, So, you know, we've already talked about our own personal drug using uh, uh, habits. But, you know, if you think of alcohol and tobacco and Mm. so forth, how uh, those are completely normalised and you know we don't think of them really as psychoactive substances especially not alcohol look at the amount of harm that alcohol causes and people don't have a fear response so i don't know but and then often people in relation to that say well the quest you know what's needed is education we need to sort of educate people but i'm skeptical about that as well so because i just think that I, I mean, we don't see people moving on these on these positions through education. We have so much policy on the pill testing. There's so much evidence of benefit, so little evidence of harm. But that seems to have, as you've pointed out, it has seems to have no, um, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to grip people. So I don't know. I think it's because of this hu- a huge range of kind of both scientific and popular discourse that's constructed drugs and drug users in a way that's really sort of demonised and stigmatised them.
0: It's interesting when we compare that though with tobacco. And I, I, I should call, I'm, my bias is I'm a supporter and I've written so on this of pill testing. So I, I caveat this next response out there. We have been very successful with demand reduction with um, tobacco use in Australia. Um, and I think this is where, I, I guess, I'm supportive of, of harm. Um, Reduction, and I look, I can engage with that term, and I can engage uh, as a person who's a, a who's from a law enforcement background, mm. a security background, um, and I think that that I look at it as a safety net, as the final phase of um, of two other efforts, um, you know. And I accept that there's a fair a fair amount of use. I also accept, I think that the, which is about um, I see not a lot of benefit um, in terms of in terms of strategy, policy, outcomes in criminalising those who use drugs. Um, and there is a vast difference. Um, so having spent time in Juarez and um, in Mexico, um, having debriefed a number of members of um, cartels, I can tell you there is a vast difference between those people and the people who are dealing drugs at mm. festivals. Um, and so, you know, there is a... And, you know, I think, and again, using that, you know, we bring a dozen police officers in here and most of them would say the same thing, which is, you know, like the idea of... Um, you know, the idea of bringing, putting someone in and injecting them into the justice system mm. on a, as a result of being found with one tablet of MDMA at a festival is far from what they would rather be doing. And
3: I think that's a really salient point that doesn't get discussed much probably because it's not, you know, most law enforcement officers aren't at liberty to talk about that.
0: Look, and I think that's the case. I think it's yeah. very hard for them to say that. And they do. It's also, though, it does go the opposite way. I think there's certainly, and, uh, you know, certainly in sociology and criminology, I think there is a ton of research to show where it's used the other way, where if, um, you know, with young people where they haven't been able to be moved on for other offences, it becomes a Clayton, like a, an offence that when you've got no other offence to, to draw upon. So, right. you know, there is a degree of where it is applied, and I think that's a fair cop. But, you know... I still don't think that the – I think that we can still work on demand reduction and I think that tobacco has shown that that, that mm. we can have those impacts. So um, that
3: would be your preference, your sort of policy preference?
0: Well, you know, I, I'm a little bit of all three. I stick to the strategy. I still think that, um, you know, we saw some success in terms of saffron oil, key um, pre, key precursor for the production of MDMA that caused a five-year drought in um, – in MDMA globally, we see the um, Thai royal family replacing and doing crop eradications in Chiang Mai, where the people there are growing tea and flowers. The communities are flourishing, um, and there's no opium poppy. Um, it has de- uh, displaced it, and I get that, but that, that becomes another issue. So I'm really about looking at its wider context and seeing each issue on its merits and going, well, you know, how do we make a difference? And also being very clear, which is I'm interested in Personally, and from a policy perspective, reducing the impact of transnational serious organised crime on this country, including the impacts of harm from drug use, Um, and that's for me personally is where I see success is. But um, you know, not in about locking up young people um, or seeing them die. And I think this is the other issue of unintended consequences. You know, look, more people die. It's interesting. We're very fixed on. Um, pill testing, which is a minor issue in the bigger scheme of ODs in this country, mm-hmm. so we've got big problems ahead. If you look at the wastewater survey from the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, um, fentanyl use is at a two-year high, and yep. it's regular use. We need to be very careful about what policy things we, we put in place.
3: Well, it's, it's politics, isn't it? You know, and it's it's we focus on things that are in front of us and that that are easily, you know, lend themselves easily to a narrative. I think, which is a real shame. Let's go to a country now that is a success story, I guess, depending on your perspective, But and that's uh, Portugal. So uh, Portugal in 2001 decriminalised all drugs. They went beyond this kind of, I guess, the, the soft touch or, or the soft approach of harm reduction. Uh, and ever since, the number of overdoses and drug-related crime and HIV infections have all fallen. In 2015, for example, there were only three drug overdose deaths for every one million citizens, which is just incredibly low. Um, I might start with you, Jason. What are some of the benefits of, if you can tie, I guess, the benefits um, of Portugal's policy directly to crime minimisation?
4: So everything you said is is true. The evidence, uh, at least for the most part, Overwhelmingly supports what's happened in Portugal as being having positive social outcomes, uh, wow. including, okay.
1: including, <laughs> including <one> for
4: <laughs> for the most part, um, a reduction in consequences in terms of flow on through the criminal justice yep. system. Um, so, and, and this is what we've been arguing for many years, which is this idea that if you can. Uh, minimize or lessen, uh, the criminological or criminal consequences of drug use, but find other ways of managing users so that they can use safely until such time as they no longer, no longer want to. Um, then there are huge savings. To government through criminal justice system uh, costs in terms of those re- uh, reduction, but also in the, some of the social disadvantage that occurs or the social consequences that emerge out of illicit drug markets um, and and kind of the, the externalities of all that. Um, so. In that sense, I think there's pretty strong evidence in the Portugal example uh, to support those kinds of ideas.
3: So I want to ask a very, very, um, you know, technical and annoying question. When we talk about crime, when you talk about crime, are you talking about uh, convictions? Are you talking about instances of crime that may never get solved? Are you talking about self-reported crime Mm victimisation?
4: It could be all of the above, uh, but But you're right. they're different. They're very different. Uh, So uh, the amount of crime that occurs in Australia and Portugal and anywhere in the world, we have really no idea because we have no good way of measuring that. Um, The three most widely accepted measures will be what the community reports as their experience of crime. We call that victimization data. It's what the criminal justice system records as the event of a crime, uh, which is when usually a victim calls the police uh, to report a crime or where the police come across the commission of a crime in the context of their other policing activity. And then you have the kind of higher level crime um, indicator, which is those things that are officially recorded as convictions in the system where someone has been found guilty, either by virtue of pleading guilty or uh, by virtue of being found guilty by the courts. Um, depending on how you measure it, obviously, depends on how much crime you think your community right. has. Uh, and I would say the vast majority of drug-related crime in Australia or anywhere in the world is completely hidden to the authorities uh, if we're talking about the activities and actions of those people who are engaged in the distribution and or use of
3: illicit substances. So I'm going to put I'm going to be a peer reviewer here, Please right? Sorry. Do. Um, friendship's over. No. <laughs> um, so the conviction of crime the rec- like uh, records of crime they're highly related they're what we call endogenous of course. right to the policy in- the policy intervention so oh. a country that is happy to liberalize its entire drug policy uh-huh. is probably also a country that is in uh, you know th- that is prepared to record fewer convictions generally right that there's sort of a- an underlying liberal ideology that affects both of those?
4: This part you're going to have to edit out, I think. No, 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 no. I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, I'm not so sure that's true, but then it could be. I I don't know the answer to the question. I I don't know whether it is true that in in kind of more liberal countries, particularly when it comes to these kind of social policies, would necessarily have uh, demonstrably – Fewer criminal incidents recorded through its criminal justice system in other areas of law. But if we're back to the drugs case, I think it's easily able to be argued that quite clearly in Portugal, the relaxing of laws will lead to uh, less attention paid by the criminal justice actors, that is police and courts and various others, um, to the identification of And management through the system of those people, Um, and as a consequence, you would have less crime recorded. Now, I think the substance of your question is, is there less crime happening in Portugal as a result of these changes, or is it just that the system's recording less of it because of the way in which the system works? And I suspect it's both. Yeah.
3: I suspect it's it's both. And the reason
4: why is because a lot of drug-related crime occurs as a consequence of the actions, activities, and the experiences of those who get caught up in the criminal justice system. Uh, As a drug crime researcher, the thing we know almost without fail is that a person's criminal career, that is how much crime they will commit over their life course, will be higher if they are dealt with by the police at a young age for relatively minor activities like drug use, right? Getting caught with a bit of cannabis or yep. one pill in your pocket gets
5: you in, the system. gets
4: you in the system. It stigmatizes you. It labels you. It means that employment opportunities, it means that schooling opportunities, it means that all manner of things are taken away from you. And as a consequence, your likely contact with the criminal justice system going forward will be much greater. Right. So therefore- it is true that both will occur. There will be less crime longer term by yep. trapping less people in the system, but also the system will respond differently to the recording of that crime. How and I think that's good for everyone.
3: Is there a broader uh, – uh, look, it's – Sorry, I'm Sorry good, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was so sort of persuasive. I, I was going to – And I, just, know, no, 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 I was going to defend, <laughs> you know, a, a sort of illiberal drug policy that <laughs> you've won me over. Yep. Helen, is there – does that extend – those benefits, do they extend to, I guess, the um, – inclusion of ma- of potentially marginalized drug users. So if say I was a drug user, yeah. and all of a sudden, mm. if you imagine this shock to the policy settings, all of a sudden my hobby, my the thing that I do was decriminalized, yeah. is that less is that likely to make me less marginalized generally?
5: Hmm, that is a very good question. I think the answer is yes, but I think it takes time. You okay, know, yep. I mean it's not something that that happens overnight, but I think it's a very powerful signal. From above, you know, saying these people are not criminals. Uh, You know, they're part of society. They're not other to us. They're our brothers, sisters, you know, mothers, whatever. So I think that um, I mean it's partly what Jason said too. The I mean the other thing that happens. uh, I just in in terms of Portugal, it's not that um, you know the drug use in Portugal has become completely unregulated. It is regulated. It's regulated through a sort of welfare health approach, right? So, I mean, I'm not uh, clear on the absolute details, but my understanding is now that instead of being criminalised, drug users are, you know, uh, 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 promoted through a kind of health and welfare system. Um, So, one thing that happens is I think that it enables drug users to be um, brought into and have connections with other systems, in in society, the health system, the welfare system, and so forth.
0: It's interesting though. We talk about drug users as a homogenous group in mm. all of this, and I think this is the other difficulty with it as well. Which is, you know, the drug user is the you know middle aged person who has an injury uh, who is you know addicted to fentanyl patches, or the mm. it's the you know the or it's the twenty something university student who takes one pill. You know, so there, there's a mm, great of variance course. with that, and I think. Yeah. One also dimension I'd add with this portrait of is, is that um, there's a truism in law enforcement and Western liberal democracies these days, which is that uh, I understand the dark figure of crime, but the other truism is, is that the amount of reported crime far exceeds the capacity of law enforcement to respond. So in working all this out, there's actually a, there's another driver that uh, in terms of bureaucrats and in terms of governments going into this as well. Mm-hmm. If you if that being the tr- case and it being a truism, if you remove some of the need to to incarcerate around minor offences, if you deal with decriminalising – and, you know, look, this is part of my argument of uh, Simply for decriminalising of marijuana in this country, which is that um, it frees up a whole lot of poli- other police resources that could be well spent on other issues such as um, domestic violence and the death of women um, and the you know the horrendous rate of um, that that occurs in Australia. So um, I guess my perspective is also that that's what the Portugal experience has shown us as well. But it's interesting the Portuguese still haven't given up on um, on supply reduction either, so I think there's a really uh, regardless of all the discussions on drug users I think it's really important if you're in terms of transnational serious organized crime if you're living off the misery of illicit gains mm. um, and I think mm. that's an important part from my perspective as an enforcement person, I still think it's a you know we're talking about a broad group of people about drug users um, mm. and they are not necessarily always the people who are organizing the sorts of drugs activities we're talking about here
5: well I think one issue when when you study um, drug use is that uh, uh, what the, a lot of the research uh, that's been done has been on clinical populations mm. uh, or you know yeah. p- I mean people who've Got into trouble with their drug use, uh, who've you know who are either been in contact with the criminal justice system or the medical system. So these are the people who have you know. Suffered serious harms because of their drug use and, you know, come to sort of various difficult circumstances. The vast majority of drug users, that's not the case. So as you say, you know, the person who takes a pill, whatever, we don't actually know anything about them particularly. Yep. <laughs> so, and I think that's when you actually take me back to your previous question about why are people so, you know, uh, about pill testing? I think people have this image of drug use and that's not just the public, but also some researchers because so mm-hmm. much of the research. Research is done on this very small uh, either clinical or criminalized subpopulation, i.e., the, the very people that are struggling you know, with with drug use.
4: I mentioned before deterrence. So yep. I want to come back to that for a moment because I gave you the criminological answer
1: <laughs> around
4: <laughs> punishment and around probabilities of getting caught and so forth. Um, the other way we deter behavior is through regulation and tax. We do that in many other areas of social policy. Uh, We use regulation and tax to deal with human behaviours that we would uh, prefer not occur or that we would like to minimise and reduce. Uh, And the Portugal experience and indeed what's happening throughout the United States at the moment um, is an example of how we can be a bit more innovative in the way we think about um, regulating, for lack of a better term, those things that we would prefer not to happen to the level that they Mm. might currently happen in our community. And there are different ways of doing that. And deterring behaviour is not just about having punishments. It's Mm. also about finding other levers to do that. Which
2: John pointed out is the tobacco case, right? Yes. It's also about looking at health issues as opposed to everything necessarily through a criminal lens, isn't it? Mm. At the end of these podcasts, we always put to our poor panellists a really (laughs) difficult question. And today's very difficult question I hate these kind of questions. Good luck to you. Uh, if you could make one recommendation, because obviously in real life you only get one, one recommendation to the Australian government on how to improve its current drug policies. And I think, Jason, we may have had some sense of where you might be headed. What would that be? And we'll start with you.
4: So I think the unfortunate externality of a lot of the uh, punitive justice responses we have in the drugs area has been on... Uh, younger populations of vulnerable and marginalised groups. Um, I'm not going to ask the government to do anything at this point in time in answer to your question, but what I will—that's
2: a real copy. ask everyone yeah. to do. <laughs> That's <unfair. laughs>
4: um, What I will ask everyone to do is to think about applying the kind of logic we do to the pill testing debate and to other debates um, to the other segments of our society that also suffer the consequences of this. So. The example will be, we're talking at the moment, or have been at least, about pill testing. Um, that's a, a, a an environment where largely middle-class young kids go who use pills um, for a bit of fun, and we think that we can provide a safer environment to do that, and that's great. We still send police with dogs down trains in Mount Druid in Sydney picking mm. up young Indigenous kids with a bit of cannabis in their pocket, and we seem to be not having that discussion. Uh, what do we do about the... the um, the policy discussion that we need to have across the broad spectrum, not just in these small pockets of areas, um, but how do we address the kind of consequences and externalities for all of our disadvantaged and young people. Um, And that's what I would ask the government to do now is to think about that as opposed to being siloed and and, Mm. and looking at just one area of the debate um, and actually thinking more broadly about the consequences of the system as a whole. And I think if we did that, then the answers that you've asked me to give you but I'm not going to would (laughs) much more easily follow.
2: Okay, so Jason, in summary then, your one recommendation is let's be sensible, thoughtful, reasonable, fair – and well-informed
5: in our policy decision-making. A very radical idea for <laughs> and, today. And
3: not discriminatory.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Helen.
5: Okay, so mine's go- I'm going to take the opposite tack. Since no one's ever going to listen to what I have to say on this, <laughs> I'm just going to say end prohibition and let's you know, forget about pill testing and let's move to safe supply. John? See, I'm going to go Jason. thinking about it
0: through that one. I think it's, a, you know, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to think that dramatic. I think that I would start small. I think we need to um, up our public policy dialogue on this. And I know that sounds like a very policy wonk um, way of putting it. <laughs> but if you look at the richness of, of what we've talked about over the last 25, 30 minutes, I mean, this is what's missing within the broader public policy dialogue. So, um, and if you look at what has succeeded in the past, so, what, um, During the heroin crisis in Australia and the heroin epidemic, it was when the Prime Minister, like I said earlier, when he stood up and he cried, he said, my daughter, you know, so then it it resonated with people. Um, We need a little bit more resonance in this argument before we can progress forward. We need to understand this broad category of drug use. We need to accept that, um, you know what, we may have a fentanyl problem in this country. We need to bring in the various players... Um, like we've done today, in fact, you know, you know we've brought enforcement, national security. We've And I think that enriched conversation is what's really needed at the moment.
3: This has been incredible. I love this idea, Helen, that you know, we think about drug users as people. And the, the, I love an analogy. The one that I get here is the decriminalisation of homosexuality, mm. that all of a sudden they, they're not your, uh, you know, the, the family member that you don't talk about. That it doesn't happen overnight, but you do start to bring people back into society. And that's kind of at the heart of all of this, right, is social capital. and the,
4: the most common answer given by people about this is, I'd rather my own children not use drugs, but I know they probably will. So when they do, I'd like it to be safe.
3: That's how I feel, and, right? And-, mm. and-
4: If you marry those two things together, on the one hand, you would like there to be no drugs for your kids to use, but you know that likely inevitably they will. So I want it to be safe. I I Mm. want it to be as harm-free as possible. And I would like it to be that by the time they get Adult, will reach adulthood, um, that they haven't accrued the consequences of that risk taking behaviour, that fun of being a young person. Um, and unfortunately, I think, coming back to everything that, and, and even Helen's statement uh, most importantly, is that at the moment the policy is currently weighed against stopping those young kids from using, not necessarily thinking about accepting that they likely will and how do we make that incredibly safe for them to do it if they're going to do it anyway?
3: That's a really great point to end on, I think. So we will thank our three panellists today, uh, John Coyne from ASPE, uh, Helen Keane from the School of Sociology at the ANU and Jason Payne from the School of Criminology at the ANU.
1: Welcome back. That was a really fascinating discussion and thanks to everyone involved with it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did listening through to it. If you are interested in exploring some of the sort of... uh, drug policy and public health issues that was talked about in that podcast, then perhaps you might want to check out Crawford's Master of Public Policy and Health Policy degree. Go to crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study to see what's on offer. And do let us know what you thought about the discussion. We're really keen to get your feedback, your Questions and your comments on everything. Now, at the end of each week's pod, we go over some of your questions and some of your comments. And also, we're going to talk today about a suggestion for a future podcast. And the first one I want to uh, Put to Jill and Sarah is an article that was written by Elizabeth Buchanan. It was called Russia, Australia's Next Target and in the piece Liz argued that there are lots of reasons for Australians to be wary of a Russian cyber campaign aimed at swaying votes in the upcoming election. We had a comment from 1NR Smith on Twitter who wrote, interesting article but I don't know, elections are vulnerable because they're a poor mechanism of democracy. It's interest groups, not Russia, which are the biggest problems. Problem. Russia's a convenient bogeyman which sidetracks tra- side us from asking tough questions about representative democracy. Jill was nodding a head and Yeah, on.
3: I think that's bang on. <laughs> I don't know either.
1: <laughs> and there was a follow-up comment to that. To that, from Marboy One, who wrote, "Why bother? The Murdoch Press, including Sky News and the Radio Trolls and the Macquarie Network, are already doing the job for them." And then one further comment from Blazer Eyes on Twitter, who said, "They're unlikely to be unrelated problems. Aren't interest groups natural targets of Russian attention or even levers?" So, Joe, I'm going to turn to you first for your thoughts on this.
3: Yeah, look, this this idea that it's a convenient uh, boogeyman, I think, is really strong and um, really convincing to me. There are bigger problems with our elections, much bigger problems. Um, One thing that this argument about, uh, you know, Russian bots or whatnot, that it assumes that voters are these empty vessels who are just, you know, blindly accepting whatever they read on Twitter or on Facebook. And we know categorically that this isn't true. To the extent that being exposed to, you know, misinformation or being exposed to messages that are pushed out by bots on social media does anything to our vote, it's only going to make us more rusted on in either direction. It's It changes basically zero votes. So I worry that it's this sort of cool and sexy and cyber issue that gets undue attention when we don't talk enough about, um, you know, private funding for candidates, the lack of transparency in Australia around um, registering uh, interpersonal interests, conflict of interests, uh, registering donations, registering uh, receipt of gifts, these sorts of things. We- we've got much more fundamental but much more prosaic issues that face Australian democracy.
1: So those are some of the issues you talked about facing democracy. But I mean, you, you talked about the sophistication of voters but it's surely about the kind of overwhelming amount of information coming out. I mean, Sarah, we saw in the U.S. election there was, you know, reported Russian interference there. There were stories about Russian interference in the Brexit issue as well. Um, do you think that uh, this, this idea of voters being vulnerable to cyber issues is, is a real concern?
2: Look, I think certainly there's some vulnerability, and we can see that reflected in the recent changes by Facebook to their main algorithm. So they're now pushing back towards the good old days of Facebook, which came out of MySpace, I would argue, where it was all about the personal and the individual and sharing stories with your friends and extended friends. And so there is a bit of a move away from having news stories on these types of social media feeds. But on the other hand, the reason that they were there in the first place was because people enjoyed them and they used them and they were interested. And so you give the user what they want. Are these a means of influence? Look, I'm very much with Jill on this one. I think we often underestimate voters. And I also think that this discussion is, to a large extent, a distraction from some of the fundamental issues that we need to consider in terms of the transitions in democracy and democratic processes that we're seeing globally. I'd also like to point out that it's not just the things online that are very influential. One of my best buddies just gave me the book, which I recommend to everyone, Vladimir Putin, Life Coach. And I mean, I'm following (laughs) it on a daily basis. It's just transformed my life. You did look incredibly ripped. (laughs) Absolutely. You should see my tiger hunting skills.
1: It's making you more Putin-esque, is it?
2: Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so many thanks for all of those comments. One N.R. Smith, uh, Marboy One, and Blazer Eyes. That's terrific uh, to have that kind of discussion. The next thing I want to touch on is a suggestion for future pod on our super cool Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. Uh, there's conversations there going with people, putting ideas to us for things that we might want to cover, and we really do appreciate those, and we actually genuinely consider them as part of the uh, editorial and planning process. And in the group, Megami Paul wrote, thanks for the podcasts. I would like to make a suggestion. Let's have a podcast on Africa and Australia relations. In the last episode, it seems there is a lot of relationship of what the East Africa community is undergoing in terms of regional integration. He's referring there to the Colin Takui Tonga Uh, podcast that we put out last week. And some key lessons include the ease of people movement, trade, fear among states, market rivalry, etc. Looking forward to another informative podcast. Well, thanks for that. I hope today's podcast has been informative. Sarah, what do you think about that idea? Is there enough of a focus on um, relations with Africa? Australia, Australia is obviously focused on the Pacific, focused on Asia. Should it be thinking more about Africa?
2: Megami Paul, I think you are spot on. I would fully support a podcast looking more at Australian and African relations. I am very privileged in that I teach in Australia, but I also teach part of the year in China where there are a number of my students who come from a variety of African countries. Uh, It's a very different student cohort. But what's fascinating, particularly in light of things like the Belt and Road Initiative, where you're seeing China, one of Australia's uh, biggest partners of interest, investing largely both in African infrastructure and in aid, is that through these types of initiatives, we are becoming more connected to the region. And so I think this is a terrific suggestion, and I'd love to see our attention turn there. I learned so much about uh, Pacific regionalism
3: last week that I would I would love to listen to this. Probably not be involved because it's not my area of expertise whatsoever.
1: I think it sounds like a terrific podcast as well. So many thanks, McGamie Paul. That's an excellent suggestion, and we will certainly uh, have a think about uh, organizing that one. So a big thank you to everyone who has contributed and commented. And a reminder, please do keep sending those comments in. We're on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook as Policy Forum Pod or email podcast at policyforum.net. We love hearing from you. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Marcy Pierce, cheerio.
2: And from Sarah Bice, listen up, write in and be well. And from Jill Shepard, thanks for listening.